Let's pray. How beautiful it is when we dwell together in unity, Lord. When we've come into one room and we sing with one voice, by one spirit, to one triune God, and we worship his name. And God, as we've come here today, we've come ready to not just sing to a God, but we've come to encounter you, God. And so, Father, I pray that the message would be a continued experience of encountering the living God. We pray, Lord, in that way, because what we long for is a fresh touch of your spirit and to become alive, Lord. There are people that may not have experienced you and be real to them today. Let your word come alive. God, we pray that today that we wouldn't be depending on the strength of men, would not be depending on eloquence or insight, but what we would be depending on is you, and that you, in a miraculous way, have decided still today to use men to communicate your message. So with this fragile mouth and with these lips, God, speak again and talk to us again. Tell us more about your character. Help us. And then Holy Spirit, being that you been sovereignly a part of this world, you know where each one of us is at. So God, divide yourself. Speak throughout this room. And we pray that when we leave this place, we pray that we would leave knowing that you have spoken. We ask all this in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Good afternoon. Welcome to Bridge Church. I'm the pastor, uh, James. And uh, I do want to make some announcements uh, to you. One, uh, we have been continuing on with our 90-day tithe challenge. And so we pray that if you've had a chance to do that, awesome. What we've said about that tithe challenge is this. We want something for you, not from you. We pray that you are experiencing the obedience of God in the area of your finances. And we trust that whenever you're obedient to the Lord in any area of your life, the Lord will bless you. And so if you've decided you don't want to do it, praise God. We are not legalistic about that in any way, shape, or form. We just want to bless you with that. If you have done that 90-day tithe challenge, we do have a devotional. Uh, We don't have them here, but we'd love for you to sign up for that devotional. It's in a devotional called Experiencing God, so we pray that you get that. Now, for those of you that didn't do the 90-day tithe challenge, what we've said is, listen, um, we would want you to pay for them, but we don't want that to be a big deal. If you don't have the money, just take, just take a devotional because we want, we want the word of God in your life. That's the biggest issue. We want you to have a deep devotional life. Other thing we want to make mention of is that we have a prayer time coming up this Tuesday here at the church. We have our Tuesday night prayer. That's right, right? This Tuesday coming up. This Tuesday night we have our prayer night. So we want you to be able to come to that. Uh, we invite our visitors out to that. We pray that you get a chance just to intercede with the saints and come before the Lord. So that's this Tuesday night. Uh, We will not be having our city group midweek. We will be here for our prayer night. This upcoming Saturday, we will be having authentic manhood. So men, let's come together and have a time to be men together. 
Uh, Matt, we're, we're going to be going through videos together. And honestly, a lot of men I know, though they may say they have friends, a lot of them live lonely. And we try to create times for men to be able to come together in our authentic manhood time so that we might be able to fellowship deeply with one another. So we have that time coming up this Saturday, right? This Saturday? Two Saturdays from now. Okay, next Saturday. You know what I'm talking about. November 14th at um, 12 p.m. So please make your way out to that, all right? Um, I do want to mention um, India Robinson. I don't think she's here right now. Some of you may know India. India's brother, who actually was at that last men's time, uh, passed away. Uh, his, his name is Stefan Burton. And it's amazing. He was there with his uh, nephew, uh, just there, and uh, 27 years old, passed away, had a seizure in the middle of the night. No histories of seizures. So the scriptures are true. Life is a vapor. All right? We have no guarantees. All right? So... Uh, be praying for India and their family as they grieve during this time. All right, let's continue on in our series uh, called Text Message. What we've said in that series is that, listen, back in the day when you got a phone call, you were able to ignore phone calls. You were even able to ignore the answering machine. But what's incredibly tough to ignore is a text message. For some reason, text messages just get our minds wondering what's in that text. And we say the reason why that is is because when we get a text message on our phone, we know it's personal. We know someone knows us and we know them. So we give immediate attention to that text message. Interestingly enough, what we say is we don't like to read the Bible because we don't like to read, but we love reading text messages. So what's the difference? The problem may be that we don't really understand the personal relevance of God's word how it truly is a message that's been shaped and crafted to speak to us today. So, in light of that, um, we want you to experience the personal nature of the text. And so we, lo we looked at last week uh, in the Psalm, Psalm 119. And David said, the Bible, the word of God is like a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. So where I'm at today, God speaks. And he gives clarity to where I am in the season of life that I'm in. And we believe God can still be that lamp and that light to all of us. The other thing we said is that for those people that have cultivated a devotional life, where you're reading the word daily, you've come to the realization that it's good to come and hear a sermon. But the Bible is so much more interesting than a sermon. Just like people who watch a movie and know the book is better than the movie, you know when you have discovered the word of God for yourself, you're not dependent on one person to communicate it. You're feeding daily on the word of God yourself. And that is my unashamed agenda for this series. I want you to have a better devotional life. I want you to, have, I want you to cultivate a life where you're feeding on the word of God on a regular basis. What we've said is that we want to, you got to pray for me. My, I, I was feeling fine until I got up here. Satan's trying to get me. Come on, pray for me. So uh, devil what, the devil is alive. That's right. All my charismatic people, pray for me right now. What we want to see is God sees. And so we want to do as he says. So we want to read what he wrote. We want to listen. We want to see as God sees. And we want to do as he says. So we want to read what he wrote. And, and, and so this is the beauty of this. Today we are going to tackle, can we trust the Bible? Can you trust it? Um, on Saturday, I was finishing up my, my sermon prep, 
and I was next to a couple, and the girl, while she spoke, she said, you know, I'm looking for a roommate, but I don't want a roommate that believes in God, because you know how they are. And so, don't, don't, don't get too hard. So then, so then the guy sitting across from her stops her and says, listen, I know how that is. They're crazy, right? And so I'm sitting, I'm sitting next to them, and I was like overwhelmed with the confidence in their skepticism. And so I thought about that to myself. I said, I bet you my people are surrounded by that. I bet you there are people that you've been around that they're so confident in their skepticism. And even as I sat there, I, I could do two things. I could be like, no, the word of God is real. Or possibly a seed of doubt could creep into my mind. And I wonder if there's been any seeds of doubt that has crept into your mind over time from a friend or even a class you took in school. You know, I remember when I was in college, I walked into a class and there was a teacher there and he was real deep. He had dreadlocks and he had his dashiki on. He was real deep and he talked in this real deep way. And he was the African studies, you know, he was over the African studies. No shade on people that took African studies, but he was just real deep. And I remember he, um, his name was Dr. Nikita Imani. Now I really think, I really think his real name was Tyrone Jenkins, but I don't know. I don't want to get into that. My point is, is that he was just this really deep guy. And so in the middle of the class, in the middle of the class, he's like, you know, and some of you grew up, you know, in a church and you guys don't really believe like snakes talk, do you? And everyone started laughing. And there were Christians I knew that believed that stuff that started laughing too. I mean, the, the, the wave of the moment just sucked them in. I mean, you don't really believe that, I mean, gee, born of a virgin? Come on now, come on. How many people are born a virgin? No way. I mean, seriously, he's gonna come back on a horse? Really? So you know they're talking about a fish, like in a, a person in a fish, like a, a whale like swallows a dude and spits him back up, seriously. And the confidence of the skepticism made people doubt. And I wonder if you've been around any confident skeptics. And I wonder if you've walked in here with any doubts. Because if, if, if not the surroundings, sometimes it's suffering. Sometimes when you don't see God do the thing you thought he was gonna do, you look into the word of God and you wonder if this thing is true. Yeah. And in fact, next week, we're gonna talk about how suffering is definitely in the syllabus, it's in the word of God. So uh, please make sure you're here and bring a friend who may be suffering right now and wondering why would God allow such a thing to happen to me? And so those things, it's our surroundings and it's the sufferings that we feel that make us wonder all these miracles. Could this book be true? Well, here's, here's the truth. The Bible is not just a book of miracles, but it is a miraculous book. The Bible is no ordinary book. Whether you believe in it or not, the Bible is just fascinating in how it was compiled and how it was brought together. And so what I want to do is I just want to unpack how the Bible has been placed together. And I want you to be more confident today that this is the word of God. Now, one of the things that the scriptures says 
about itself in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Reads like this. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, the, the word there where it says all scripture is God-breathed, the word in Greek, it's theopneustos, it, it means God speaking with his breath out. And so the, what the Bible says about itself is that in some way God has spoken with his breath. And he's spoken in such a way that it says it's useful. So God spoke not in some static message just to impress us, but he gave us insight into life. So it says it's useful for teaching. It's useful if you go the wrong way, it'll bring you back the right way. It'll correct you and it will train you. But not just you alone. Look what it says. So that the servant of God, so that the servant of God may be equipped for every good work. Every good work. And so God spoke in such a way where he wants to make you equipped for the season of life you're in right now. Some of us are wrestling with things that God already had something to say about. And there's no need to wonder why. Some, I mean, seriously, there are areas of issues of anxiety, issues of relationships, issues of sexuality, issues that we deal with every day. And God already spoke about that. And I wonder how he feels sometimes while we wrestle. I wonder what God thinks. He's like, I already told you. <laughs> God has spoken. And so because the Lord has place this book in such a way where it's been it's, it's useful to us we ought to know how it was just placed together now one of the things that happens when people wonder about the bible they'll look in one part of the bible then they'll look in another and they're like see i don't i don't get how this works i mean i don't understand why why it, why why does it talk about war so much and why slavery come on dog i mean what's going on and all these things happen but understand this the Bible is less than a book and more like a library. There are 66 different books in it, just like a library. And so these 66 different books were put together over a time span of 1,500 years. 1,500 years. So people dealing with a completely different context and a completely different time, not just that. 44 different authors, 44 different people, 66 different books, 1,500 years. And what is crazy is that it's not like these were all just scholars and theologians. These are all types of people. In the Bible, the, the scriptures are written by politicians and farmers and shepherds and peasants and musicians and poets and tax collectors. It's written in all different types of places. Moses was in the wilderness, and Jeremiah was in a dungeon. Luke was traveling, and Paul was in prison. John was on an island in Patmos. 
They were all at different places in different times. This book, this, no, this book that's not ordinary, was written in 13 different countries, three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It's written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And what's amazing is that there's accuracy and consistency when it comes to the message and the character and the nature of God. Yeah. And not just him but his redemptive plan. And so when you look at the Bible, just understand you're looking at totally different time periods, but there seems to be a a chord that runs throughout it about who he is and how he loves people and how he loves you. Well, today we will enter into a classroom just for a second so that we can understand the nature of how the Bible is accurate and trustworthy, and so that we don't think it's just a bunch of opinions written by different people. In 1952, there was a historian named Steve Sanders, and he put together three specific tests to evaluate the the authenticity of any historical writing. And so if we were to put the Bible to that test, those three tests, we'll see if the scriptures are able to pass. And that first test is the internal test. And what it's asking is in any document, we're justified in discovering whether or not the writer of the document believed that what they were writing was true. In other words, when we look internally, do the writers of the Bible claim it's true? Is there ever a point where the writers of the Bible say, you know what, this is just a story that's going to make you more moral. We're just making this stuff up. Is there ever a point in the Bible where people say, you know what, I thought I saw that, or I thought he was who he was, but that's really not the case. Is there ever a point where they feel like they are in contradiction with what the truth is? That would be the internal test. Second Peter gives us some insight into that. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16 right, right, reads this way. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. Oh, that's good. We didn't put together a really good lie. <laughs> but not just that. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he's saying, I'm telling you what I saw, but but you may think I made this up. So I'm all right, I didn't make this up. (laughs) But what makes this even better is this, verse 20 of that same chapter. Above all, you must understand, listener and reader, no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. Not only did I not make this up and I was an eyewitness, but I did not come together in my mind and think this through. Verse 21, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as though they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying is, listen, I am like a boat with no engine. I just have a sail. And the only way I moved was that the wind blew me. And that's what, what, that's what enabled me to move from one place to the next. And he is saying, I didn't think of this stuff. I really was moved along by the Holy Spirit to write. 
He says, no prophecy of Scripture is that way. Scripture was breathed out by God, and men were moved along to write. And so you could challenge that, though. The authenticity could be challenged. You could say, well, okay, you put together a really good story, but stories get out. Stories get made up all the time. But understand, in the New Testament, when it was written, it was written between 47 and 95 AD. That's only about 50 years that it was all put together. So the importance of that is that 50 years is a short amount of time, and first-generation believers were still alive when it was written. So when people wrote, there were people there, and they, pub they published this stuff, and there were people there that could authenticate it or reject it. In 1994, I was 17 years old. I was in high school. I was not a good student. <laughs> Bad student. Now, when I was 17, I was not a good student. If 50 years later, when I'm 67, I decide to publish a work and tell people I was valedictorian, there will be people adamant that will still be alive and say, I remember him, and I don't remember him in class. He lied. And I can validate the fact that he's not telling the truth. And my story would never get any fame. It would not get any movement or traction. And so reality is that first-generation believers were still around. So it seems to me that the Bible t passes the internal test, the people that wrote it believed it was true. And it seemed that it made its way out into the community. But not only is there an internal test, there's an external test. This external test is another important test because the Bible does speak of his historical times and periods. In other words, when Jesus comes about in Matthew, there's actually a census. Did that census actually take place? In the Old Testament, there are periods and points at which they talk about kingdoms and kings. Were those people really alive? In other words, the external test says, okay, y'all thought y'all were true and accurate, but do the people around you at the time also believe that what you said was accurate and true? <clears throat> well, we know first and foremost that the historicity, like that word, that's when I get real deep, the historicity of Jesus Christ, it's incredibly well established. Roman writers, Greek writers, Jewish sources, they all affirm the life of Jesus. But not only that, we have the first century historian Josephus, who wrote about Jesus, he wrote about John the Baptist, he wrote about James, and he wrote about all sorts of leaders in the, that we see in the book of Acts. So we see that there are many of these names and people. So you say, okay, there's no historical evidence that comes against the work of the Word of God or the Bible, but is there any archaeological evidence? And this is a very important point. There are no archaeological discoveries that enable us to say that everything in the Bible is true. But there are no archaeological discoveries to tell us that the things in the Bible aren't true. So this is a very important point. Nelson Gluck says, he is the former president of the Jewish Theological Seminary. 
He is known as a great all-time archaeologist. He said this, it may be stated categorically, listen, that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Not one reference of the Bible. They've never found Jesus' bones, hallelujah. They've never found something to be able to say that this in history did not take place. So we know that nothing historically has been able to come against the word of God. Well, lastly, in terms of this test, I think the last part is something that you may have heard or have come against. It's called the bibliographic test. And this is the question around the original documents translated. The question is, didn't something get lost in translation? Now, some of you have heard that question asked before. And some of you may be dealing with that question right now. You know, I mean, I've been in, I've been in classrooms. I've been talking to people. They say, come on, James, you know. You, you remember the, the phone game growing up? You know, y'all all sit in a circle, and one person tells the story, and they all go around, and it's never the same by the time it gets back to you. If that works with the phone game, how do you think it worked any differently over 1,500 years? <laughs> well, here's one thing that's different. The Bible obviously is different than the phone game. But more importantly, you have to understand the sacred way in which scribes copied the manuscripts of the Bible. It wasn't a small task. It was considered a sacred task. So much so that when someone would come to the word Jehovah, they would actually empty out the ink of the pen, wash themselves, get reclothed, and then write it. Listen, everything was done by hand. One Hebrew character at a time. They would actually count the number of letters in a master scroll and then count the number of letters in the completed scroll. And if the numbers were not identical, they would destroy the whole scroll. Now you have to understand why that's so important. Because one word, the Bible talks about jots and tittles. Those are, those are like commas and pronunciation marks. Changing one element of that could change the whole meaning of a text. It could change the whole meaning of a message. Years ago, a, a woman in Europe sent over a telegraph message to her husband. This is the time of the telegraph where you had to tell the operator and then they wrote it in a telegraph to another person. She told the telegraph operator, have found a wonderful bracelet, priced $75,000. May I buy it? Her husband immediately responded with the message, no, price too high. However, the telegraph operator missed one small detail in the transmission. They forgot the comma after the no. So the wife in Europe replied, received the reply, no price too high. So she was excited. And she went out and got the bracelet. And he's upset because he said, I said no price too high. She said, I know. But you see how one comma changes the whole essence of a message. And so, because that is the case, 
those who would transmit it and copy it took precision and detail around every jot and tittle, around every comma and period in a sentence. So much so, <clears throat> you could Google this, but the Dead Sea Scrolls years ago in 1946 were found by a Bedouin shepherd in some caves. And there were these Dead Sea Scrolls, these scrolls, there were 981 texts found in caves all around the Dead Sea. And when they opened up those jars and they looked at those texts, they were able to take Hebrew texts of Isaiah today and look back at those texts from ancient, decade, ancient years ago. And they said it had incredible accuracy, nothing that was different. And so this is the kind of confidence that we can have. Well, those are the three tests, but I, I think the part of the, one of the biggest areas that gives me confidence in the scriptures is what you would call the prophecies of, of Jesus. My wife and I, we, we love to watch movies together. In fact, this Saturday we were watching a, a movie together and uh, we love to predict the ending, right? We love to see who's going to die first and who's going to make it. And so it all, in every, every movie, we do the same thing. And my wife, she's very, she's very accurate, you know, and she's proud of that fact. So, you know, we'll be in a movie and she'll be like, she's going to die. She's going to die. She's going to die. She's going to die. She's dead. She's dead. God forbid the woman dies. So I'm still watching the movie. The movie, you know, the woman dies. And I can just feel her presence like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's just something about us that loves predictions. That's in a two-hour movie. Imagine if thousands of years ago there was a prediction about a man named Jesus and there was incredible accuracy around that. There was these predictions that we call prophecies. And these prophecies are all throughout the Old Testament. And what's amazing is that dozens and dozens of the prophecies were put together one time by a group, by a professor named Peter Stoner. And he got together 600 of his students. And what they did was they tried to consider the statistical analysis of someone lining up with one of those predictions slash prophecies. And then they did the statistical analysis of eight of those prophecy slash predictions. I'll tell you the number of those predictions, like what is the statistical analysis? What are the chances of a person just lining up with eight of those? But I just wanna share with you just some of the amazing predictions, the prophecies of Jesus. And you know, we read it and we're just like, yeah, the Bible says this, but let's just take into account that these are thousands of years beforehand. The fact that Jesus would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 4, Isaiah 7 and 14. And then he actually was in Matthew. That he'd be born actually in Bethlehem. And that there had to be a census taken all for that to happen. But he really lived in Nazareth. That he, it says he would be anointed by the Spirit. That he actually rides triumphantly on a donkey. Yeah. That he was betrayed by a friend. He was silent before his accusers and he was beaten and spat upon. How did he set it up while on the cross that they cast lots for his clothing, yet it would line up with Psalm 22? How did he set it up 
that he would be crucified with criminals? How, when he was taken out, did he set it up where there would be given vinegar for him to drink? Why did he quote uh, Psalm 22 while he was up there on the cross saying, Eli, Eli, Sabachthani, oh my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Did he say it just so that it could line up? How did he set it up where he would be pierced for our sins and it would say it in Isaiah 53 and then be written in John 19? How did he set it up that his bones would not be broken in Psalm 34 and that it actually didn't happen? How did he set it up that the days would turn dark? And in Matthew 27, it tells us he did. And how did he set it up that he would rise again from the dead? How did he set all that up? How did he set it up? The odds of a person. I, I read to you 15 prophecies. The odds of someone just lining up with eight of those is one. And one with 17 zeros behind it. It's a lot. It's astronomical for just one person to be able to be able to have all those predictions or prophecies about them to be true. Well, with all those facts, you may say to yourself, man, that's pretty convincing. But here's what I've come to the conclusion about. All the facts in the world, all the predictions and prophecies in the world cannot radically change your heart. What has to happen is that the God that breathed and spoke to those men must speak to you. He must speak into your life. And the reason why I know the Bible is true is not just because of those facts. I know it's true because he spoke to me. And he spoke into my life. I remember, I remember I, um, at the end of my senior year, I tried out for the Chicago Bears. In the tryout, I was in the 40-yard dash. And so as I'm running, I pulled my hamstring. This was my big moment. This was a moment I always dreamed of, to be in the NFL, to be this all-pro player and in my interview in my tryout I pulled my hamstring and I remember laying there on the ground and wondering how could you let this happen to me and I went into my room and I remember how while I limped around campus how I was disregarded by people I remember how I was treated differently because I wasn't this primetime athlete anymore and I remember how alone I felt I remember how confused I was. I remember how I wrestled. And I didn't know the Bible, but I read something one day in the scriptures. So I thought about all those people who disregarded me. As I watched the scouts walk away, friends walk away, I read Hebrews 13 and 5. I will never leave you or forsake you. The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. And that came alive to me. It exploded. But it didn't explode in my mind, it exploded in my heart. It became true to me. And so the scriptures, the truth of them, the accuracy upon them, it wasn't that I just thought intellectually something happened in my heart. And I pray happens in your heart. There is a prophecy that is still yet to become true. It reads this way. 
Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and there was no longer any sea. There's no more sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the older of things has passed away. And the Bible is predicting something else. The Bible is predicting a whole new reality of life where there is no more pain and no more death and no more dying. And this prediction is based on these other predictions. See, you have to know Jesus in order to experience that prediction. And my prayer is not that you would be here today teeter-tottering on the line of faith. I pray that those seeds, if they've been taking root, that they would be excavated this morning and we would uproot those seeds and you would trust the word of God. But more importantly, you would trust Jesus. You would trust in the Jesus that was pierced for our transgressions. Trust the Jesus that had his body broken for us. Trust him. And don't wait till your intellectual elements are massaged. Wait, trust today because God has spoken, ready to equip you for life. He's waiting, he's spoken. He's spoken. And we have these devotionals back there because we want you to experience him. The Bible expresses God as bread to be eaten, as water to be drank, to be experienced daily, to be consumed. Why have life starving you when there is a meal of the Lord waiting for you to be experienced? He does not just want to be read about. He wants to be experienced. He is a God of relationship, a God to be encountered. God has not left himself as a mystery. I was on campus one time, and this one girl said, oh my gosh, the Bible. I mean, God wrote a book. And I said, well, have you read it? Have you given it a chance? Have you read it for yourself? I know what all the skeptics say, but have you read that book? And I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the good thing about my God, no matter how many times you have forsaken him, he still wants you back. No matter how many times you have rejected him, he wants you. And he is available today to you. And I challenge you to get off the sidelines and to experience him today. Experience him today. Experience how good his word is. And if you've been reading and saying, God, speak to me, let us pray with you so that you can have him speak. For he has spoken. He is not silent. And this text message is personal. And it is personal for you personal for you. My fear is that you'd walk away. Don't walk away. Stay in this moment. Feel the tension of this moment. Feel the deciding element of this moment. Feel it. Feel the weight of it. 
Feel, the, feel how much it's hard to refute this stuff. Feel it. Feel how much that you just sat here and say, why am I still on the sideline? That's the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. And I just pray that you would come today. He's still speaking. He's still speaking. We are going to have communion. Communion is this incredible picture of God symbolically showing us how he gave himself for us. It's this incredible picture of saying, listen, take some bread and break it. And when you break it, I want you to remember how my bones were broken. And take some wine and drink it. And just remember how my blood was poured out. And every time you eat it, and every time you drink it, I want you to remember the Lord's death for your behalf. For I wrote all of this so that you would know me. Because at the center of the Bible, the hero of this story is Jesus, who gives himself the hero, sacrifices himself for the people. And I pray today as we take communion, we want to do two things. We'll have people lined up here for you to take from the cup and for you to eat the bread. And I pray today as you take that cup and you eat that bread, I pray that you would lay all the burdens that you have on Jesus. I pray that you would celebrate the victory of Jesus on the cross. I pray you would rejoice in Jesus. But some of us need to come today for prayer. And over here, we have a prayer station made available to you to pray. And some of you need to pray and say, I need Jesus in my heart. I need it to become real today. But others of you may say, you know what? I am not where I need to be. I mean, let's, I got to stop front today. I'm just not where I need to be. And there will be people over here waiting to pray for you and pray with you. And if you feel in any way that the same God that spoke through Genesis, through Revelation, is speaking to you today, I challenge you to act and respond to the God of heaven and earth. I'm going to pray, and then we'll have the people for communion to come. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what power is in your word. Thank you that you want to talk to us. Thank you that Jesus is Emmanuel, that he wanted to be with us. And thank you that your word is living and active. And it gets down to all my motives and all my agendas. And God, get beyond all those excuses that we've been making. Get beyond the fact that we keep, we're so inconsistent. Get beyond the fact that we're, we're sick and tired of ourselves. Get beyond that and get us to the place where we just start with you and we end with all the excuses. I challenge us to respond to the spirit of the living God. And for those of us, God, that just need that fresh reminder of the gospel, let the breaking of the bread let the drinking of the wine, let it be real to us. 
the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. The gospel is real today. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.